you would turn your Bibles to Genesis 45. Um, and actually, I think this morning we have been like these longer passages, not been reading those together. But I'm going to read that to you. If you would just stand with me and we'll read from Genesis 45. Robert, do I need to move this down? start here in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there, yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all... And of all that you have seen, hurry and bring back my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and went upon and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers had come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for their the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, 
the spirit of their father, Jacob, was revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe see. This is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. I hope it is for you. I hope you've enjoyed the study this week of this chapter, this passage. And I just want to encourage you. I think it is so important uh, for us as we study the Bible for us to consistently get before God's Word. I mean, you need that reminder week after week to, to feed upon all the other things that, that kind of capture our attention. And to neglect that is probably one of the worst things that you could possibly do for your spiritual journey. And not only that, we should model that for our families, that we are people who get before God's Word. We want to know what He says. We are humble. It's a sign of humility. When I don't do that, I think I'm okay by myself. When I sit before God in His Word, it's a sign that I need Him to speak to me. And I just encourage you today, in every week, to, to make time for that. Make time for the time for us to get together and discuss those things. Make time to hear the message of, the, of, of this book. I, every week I think it's just important that process for us to sit before God's Word personally, to discuss it with one another, and then to hear it preached is a way for us to learn and grow and saturate our minds with truth. So I just encourage you to do that. And so if you would just bow with me as we come to this portion of our study uh, and we seek the Lord to give us wisdom. Father, we just ask that you ca- capture our minds this morning. We so easily are distracted. We live in a culture loaded with distractions. We live in a culture that everything is just brief 30-second things trying to capture our attention with visual things that just come at us all the time. And we just ask this morning, you would allow us to, to hear from you, to be still and know that you are God to believe what you say here, to long to see it applied in our life. We ask that the Spirit would so burn into our hearts the truths of this passage that we might believe them, that we might walk in light of them, that we might be encouraged by them, and that we might see Christ as the supreme sacrifice that was offered on our behalf so that we might be restored into relationships so that we might be blessed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Joseph was, uh, if you think back with me just quickly, Joseph was sold into slavery with his, by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt as both a, a slave and then a prisoner. The Lord is with him throughout all that. He suffers greatly. But the suffering is kind of a backdrop for his exaltation. He becomes the most powerful man or second to the most powerful man in the world. Uh, he does so because he interprets a dream that there was going to be seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. In the seven years of, of famine, you just kind of, as you're reminded of that, there, 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 actually it'll be, just say first, there'll be seven years of plenty, Egypt's going to store up, and then the seven years of famine. But during that time, his brothers are going to return to him. He's going to take them through a series of tests. Because of what they had done to him, there's certain things that need to be dealt with. He's going to bring those to them, I think under God's direction, so that they could come to a place where they were repentant, they were broken, and they were found to be a, a men that would be faithful now. 
I think all those things are true of that, and God's using that. And He's also using that to show you the desperate condition that they were in, the sinfulness in their own hearts, the things that they had done, so that when they experience the mercy and grace of God through their brother, it blows your mind. So all those things are kind of set before us. There's a sense in which if you sat down and you read this story from Genesis 37 to this point, there's something really amazing about doing that. But also it's really powerful to stop and look at this along through as we've done through the stages of, of this, this ordeal. And so I just think it's important. Today we're going to see Joseph's forgiving heart towards his brothers. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's forgiveness towards us. He will bless them immeasurably. And they deserve nothing. And so I just think it's important to kind of see as we move forward. So look at Genesis 45, and we're going to look at these first few verses. Um, we get to verse 1. And remember, they've come back to Joseph, and now Benjamin's found with a cup, and, and Judah's just said, look, I'll take Benjamin's place. I'll become a servant the rest of my days. He kind of lays that whole story out, and Benjamin is there, and, and everybody's kind of wondering, what's he going to do? So in verse 1, Joseph couldn't control himself any longer. We know that he's done this before. He's left his brothers a couple of times weeping. Now he just can't stand it any longer. He's overwhelmed with a desire to present himself before them, to make things right. All of this is going on. He sends everybody out of the room. He says, I want everybody to leave. Remember, he's a very powerful man. He has servants all around, all these things going on. He says, everybody get out of the room. In verse 2, he weeps so loudly that the Egyptians who have been sent out, they hear what's taking place because he is weeping. And here's the thing. He, he doesn't even say anything to them. He says, everybody get out, brothers stay, and he just starts weeping. He is he's wailing. I mean, the, everybody would hear him doing this outside of that room. Not only that, he wept so loudly that Pharaoh's house heard about it. So he's in there with his brothers. He's not saying anything. He's just overwhelmed with just all the emotions that are coming forward. He's not the man that he was portraying to them that he was. Remember, he's so hard and tough and like, but inside of him was all of these, this compassion and love, and it's just kind of flowing out here. In verse 3, as you move forward, it's, um, it's, it's just, it's a very, I just want to stop one more thing. All those tests, this helps you see. You ever met somebody that thinks, well, I could agree with Joseph. I'd put him through those tests. But, but be, behind all of that was a heart just loaded with compassion. And so I just think it's important just to stop there and say, because you, you kind of say, yeah, I could agree with Joseph up to this point. But internally, it, everything's kind of flowing out of what he really is. And verse 3 says, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? He's, he's, he, he wants to know about his father. He's been thinking about him for 20 plus years. He's been thinking about where he is and what he's doing and how he's doing and all those things. And then you notice here when his brothers hear this, when he says, I am Joseph, when he steps down before them, and they can see in his eyes that he is, he is a part of their family. They can begin to kind of make it out and they say, we remember that 17-year-old boy and now... 22 years later, it, they can see, oh my goodness, I can see you know, my father in him or, or us and all those things kind of, we can see him. He looks like Benjamin or whatever it might be. They are dismayed. They're not really excited. They are afraid. 
they would be terrified. The, really, the last interaction they had with him was when he was screaming and crying out, don't sell me into slavery. They've already been thinking about it. Now they're face to face with him. They may have thought he's weeping because he's glad to see Benjamin, but these are tears of anger as he sees us. They're afraid of what's about to take place. He could have put them in prison for life. He could have tortured them as long as he liked. He could have killed them. He could have reenacted all those things and said, I'm going to sell each one into slavery as merchants come in. I'm going to send them out. and They're going to be sent out throughout the whole world. They're dismayed at his presence. Verse 4. But notice what he says to them. I'm your brother Joseph. Come near to me. And notice also what he says as he's, he's bringing them close. It's a sign of intimacy. He's saying, step up closer to me. But he goes on to say, he's saying to them, I am Joseph who you sold into to slavery in Egypt. This still is one of those moments where you're like, what is taking place here? From an, you know, It's a very powerful thing just to think about. They did this. Now, let's talk about something real quick. About human responsibility. Because both of these are going to be seen in this passage. But from an earthly perspective... Joseph's brothers were actively involved in selling him into slavery. And they were. They hated him. They actively chose to do what they did. They wanted him dead. They did this. He suffered at the hands of their scheming. They are responsible. They are culpable for their sins. You have to understand, your decisions are your decisions. You choose what you choose to do. You are held accountable for your rebellion. It, I think it's important. We cannot discount that. There, there's human responsibility for your sinfulness. But notice what happens. Verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. God did it. They did it. We have in this is like a beautiful picture of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Some people like to talk only about human responsibility. Others like to talk only about divine sovereignty. The Bible presents both. They are running down the track next to one another. They are friends. This is our whole life. It's that man is making his decisions. He is not completely... This is not talking like complete free will, but this is just saying these men are culpable for their sins. They chose to do what they wanted to do. But God is working. His plan. God is behind this. God sends him there. God orchestrated these events. So I think you have to see both of those. So from a heavenly perspective... God accomplished His plans through these wicked men. God was not surprised. He orchestrated the events of Joseph's life. God purposed it. God designed it. God set it up. God was the one that was bringing it about. So you take those two in tension and understand both are true. He did so through His brothers. He was accomplishing His plan. God was working out the salvation even of the brothers in spite of their wickedness. Through their wickedness. So you see those two, and I think it's so important to say that. 
I think it's important to see how this Joseph's going to say, you sold me here, God purposed it. Both of those things to be true. Verse 6, For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So what Joseph's going to say, he says, look, there's five more years of this. You guys think you're in a bad way. There's five more years of famine. Now, by the way, just to stop real quick, just because I think it's important to note this, he was 30, he's probably like, we argue like maybe 17 or whatever when he be, you know, went into slavery. He's 30 when he becomes chief over uh, Pharaoh's house. He lives 37 years in a time of plenty plus two years of famine. He's 39. So just kind of in your mind, just understand, he's 39 years old, he has, they have five more years of famine left, and, and he's speaking to his brothers about this. Verse 7, and God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive for, for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He is going to reiterate to them, God is doing this. Now you stop and think about your life. God is orchestrating your life. You are here this morning because of God. You've walked down the road that you are on because God had planned it. God had orchestrated it. You've done rebellious things, no question. You have sin in your life. And and that's true. And you may have walked all these steps, but you know, looking back, you say, look, I sinned, I rebelled, and I take full responsibility for that. I'm a sinner and I sin. But this road that I'm on is the road God has for me. I'm not on plan B. I'm not on plan C. I'm not on plan 300,000. It's a road that God has me on. I have some regrets. Or you have some regrets. It's a road God has for you. It's where you are. And so I think it's important just to say that. And what is God doing? He is preserving the people of promise. This story is not just a character study. It is a thought that for you to come away and say, God made a promise to establish a people for Himself, to give them a land, to bless them, and to bless all the nations of the earth through them. And He's going to bring it to pass. This story is about the preservation of the promise. Salvation would have been lost. The promised seed would have been lost. The one that Galatians says He is the seed, it is Jesus Christ would have been lost. You would not be here today in the, st- in the status that you are in had God not done this. He is preserving His people to bring about the salvation of all those who would believe in Christ. What you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the present result. Verse 8, Joseph tells them that you did not send me here first and foremost, but God did. And He's placed me in charge. Now, I just think it's just important just to understand that here's the thing. A lot of people believe in chance. A lot of people, they look at life on a horizontal scale. A lot of people like dismiss God's intervention. Here's the thing. Even Christian people, 
who claim to be Christians look at their life and they have all these things that they look back to and they maybe a lot of regret or a lot of this or a lot of that or think I should have made this decision or this business decision or this or this or this or this and they never they're never comfortable saying God is orchestrating my life he's moving and accomplishing his plan every time I say I wish I'd have done this or I wish this or I hate that this happened or why is this going all those things you have to say God is orchestrating my life and he's moving and accomplishing his will we have to be begin to see it with a vertical vision you are where you are by the sovereign hand of God that does not mean that you can go out and live however you want the admonition in scripture is don't rebel against God walk in his ways but your kids your job your spouse where you are where you are is where God has you in this moment and you're called to be faithful this doesn't minimize the sins of others or your own sin. But I just want to, it's important to point that out. Now, James Montgomery Boyce speaks in this way of life and its circumstances. He says, that is why we must never chafe against circumstances God brings to us. We call them mere circumstances and treat them lightly, but they are not mere circumstances. They are God's weaving of the tapestry of our lives. The important thing for every believer is to be living in the light of God's presence, knowing that his or her life is being guided by God's hand. You may look at your life and see dark threads and wonder how God can possibly use those threads to produce a thing of beauty. But you should look to the life of Joseph and remember that God even uses the wrath of men to praise Him. So you just ask this morning, do you have a heavenly vision do you understand that God is in the good and bad circumstances of life? Do you hold the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Do you see God's hand working and then your responsibility to walk in His ways? But even in your sin that God's still working, He's accomplishing His plan. Do you see it that way? Do you look at the dark threads maybe of this week and see how God is working for His glory, your good and the good of others? That those things are a part of what God is weaving together to make your life most useful for His kingdom. We see that. Joseph's life was a part of God's plan. His plan was bigger than Joseph's. And even though his brothers sinned against him and people will sin against us, God is orchestrating it. So I just think it's important just to say, now, as we keep moving forward in, in verses 9-13, through 13, He's going to say, go tell my father where I'm at. He says, tell them that he can, and he kind of lays it out. He said, you're going to get to dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, if you know anything about Egypt, you know that the Nile River runs through it and it comes out, it has all these like forks out of it at the top. The land of Goshen was there. It was some of the most fertile of all. I mean, it was a beautiful thing to be there. It was like the, the best land possible to live in because really the Nile River would flood every year and it would certainly dump over its banks but to live up there was just one of the greatest places to live and so he's going to say I'm going to place you there all of your family and your possessions I'm going to take care of you you will not come into poverty but you'll experience abundance it's such a powerful thing everything seemed to be lost for them they were just trying to get enough to survive and now he's going to provide for them more than they could ever imagine and then he goes on to say look you go and tell my father this and you know this is my mouth speaking benjamin knows it all the brothers have seen it 
You go and tell him of my honor and bring him back down here. He wants to see his father so badly. He wants to experience just life with him. Verse 14 and 15, though, this is just, oof. I mean, when I, if you really spend a lot of time studying this passage, when you get here, it, it's so overwhelming. I mean, you could just sit there. If you actually had emotions, you would weep over this part of the story. It's such a powerful thing. Notice what it says. Then he fell upon his brother's Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. In this moment, you see, they were dismayed. And they watch him draw his brother close, and he's leaning over on his neck, and he's weeping as he's holding him and hugging him and all those things. And you kind of still think, now what's going to happen with the rest of the brothers? And he embraces them. And he kissed all of his brothers. This shows forgiveness. This shows reconciliation. This shows so many beautiful things. He wanted the best for them. He held nothing against them. This is one of the most amazing images in all of Scripture. You see Him just pouring out love upon those who had just treated Him so poorly. He had been wounded beyond measure. We really can't understand all the weight of all these things. You know, He... He could have stopped them. And it's just so important to understand and recount everything that they did. He could have had a little book where he made a list of all the horrific things that they had done to him and then thought of ways that he might punish them if he ever saw them again. He could have been overbearing and controlling them every step from that point on. All of those things could have been... Joseph did none of those. He forgives them. He brings them close to him. Now here's the thing. It's not just saying He forgives. You know how you have those people in your life that you say, look, I've let that go. I've let it go. I don't want to see them again, but I've let it go. I've forgiven them, but I would not want to befriend them. I don't want to speak to them, talk to them, see them. I don't want good for them. I'm not praying for God to bless them. You see? That's one way to do it. And you say, I'm justified in that. I've let it go with God. He'll judge them. But but Joseph doesn't do that. He rescues them from poverty and blesses them beyond measure. How could somebody do that? How could you do that? He believed that God had accomplished His will. That's why. Because His suffering was God's work. His struggle was God bringing that to pass. He saw that no one could touch Him. No one. Apart from God allowing it to be sifted through His hands. It was God's work. He was accomplishing His plan. It was a part of the divine plan of God. His suffering had greater purposes He saw it as from the hand of God. That is so important because we will not live in this life without being sinned against by others. That will be the way it is and you will sin against others. How do you deal with that? You put it in the hands of the sovereign God. When I see it's His hand, it changes everything. Not only that, let me just catch this. When you 
see yourself in light of a holy God. When you see how sinful you really are, when you see the magnitude of your sin in light of who God is, it changes things. You see it in light of that. You say, I could never forgive like God is forgiven. We think of Matthew 18, and we mention that, or I mention that often. I think about it when I'm talking with people. And and when Peter said, how much should I forgive? And he says, should I forgive seven times? And Peter's like, boy, that would be a big deal to forgive someone seven times. And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven times. He's given this infinite number. And then he goes to tell the story of a king who is owed like 10,000 talents, which was just insurmountable number. He's owed so much by this servant, he calls him in, and he's going to throw him into prison, and the, king, and the servant says, please forgive me, please forgive me. And the king finds it in his heart to forgive him of this unbelievable debt. That servant walks out. He sees somebody who'd offended him a few times owed him some money, a small amount. He begins to choke him, has him thrown in prison. And the other servants think, what is this cat doing? He's just been forgiven something that you could never be forgiven for. And the Lord says in this story that He tells, so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, first step in this whole deal is to see that what you've, the road that you've been on is God's working out His plan in your life. The sins that have been done against you is God's working out of His plan in your life. The second thing is to say, I've been forgiven beyond measure. How could I not forgive? Those two things ground our forgiveness towards others. And Joseph shows for us, he is not just going to say, forgive and forget. He's going to say, Forgive and bless. Bless beyond measure. Later, as you keep moving this passage, in verses 16 uh, through 20, Pharaoh's going to hear about this and he's going to come in and say, give them the best of the land. Bless them beyond measure. Do great things for them. I want them to be provided the best of things. He even tells Joseph, look, you grab some wagons up, you send them down there, and you put all their kids in there and send them back here and they're going to take my U-Hauls back, right? And they're probably even better than our U-Haul, right? You ever driven one of those? Whew. Anyway, so he sends his U-Haul down there and says, bring all of them back. And I'll tell you what, tell them don't even worry about bringing anything with them. The best of the land. I'm the most wealthiest, I'm the wealthiest man in the world. And the best is going to be provided for them. The best that I can offer which is really like saying, I'll give you the whole world. Leave all your little piddly stuff back there. Give it to someone else. You're going to have the best. And so as you move forward through this, it's such a powerful picture. They were poverty stricken and struggling and God is going to provide for them through Joseph and through Pharaoh. Tremendous blessing. It's beyond measure. Verse 21, as you move forward in through 27, Joseph's brothers return to their father. When they get to their father, right before they go, you'll see he's going to give them this change of clothes. It's, a, it's another picture of his love and his care for them, of his forgiveness, of, of just handing over them. He's going to bless Benjamin 
exceedingly. And then he's going to send to his father all of these things that are going to be like the best of Egypt's coming down there. And all the supplies that they'll need to come back and not have any need at all. He's going to give them tremendous provision. Now notice what he says though in verse 24. He said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Why would they quarrel? Why would they be quarreling? It may have been one of those things where they're sitting there saying like, you know, it was Judah's fault. He was the one who said, well, sell him into slavery. Or so-and-so says, you remember how much you hated that cat? You led all of us to go that way. There's a list of things that they'd come together and he's saying to them, you don't worry about that. God sent me here. You were the means by which He did it. But it's been dealt with. And I will not bring it up to you again. God brought me here. And He kind of keeps telling them that. He says, don't quarrel any longer. God brought me here. Let it go. And as they move forward, in verses 25-27, through they tell their dad when they get there, and their dad's like, it says his heart goes numb. What does that mean? Maybe it's almost like saying his heart stopped. He's like, oh my goodness. He just can't even get his breath. They think, we just killed him. You know, I mean, he just like... And then when he sees all the evidence and hears Joseph's words, his heart is revived. It's like he comes back to life. It's like he's living again. It's like 22 years of this cloud of darkness of the loss of a son. And he's alive! It's such a beautiful picture and his heart's revived and he believes them. And he says in verse 28, is it not enough that Joseph, my son, is still alive? I will go and see him before I die. It's such an amazing picture for this whole family of God's preservation of the promise for them. He is with them. He's working his plan out. Now, to me, this is one of the most amazing stories in all the Bible. And I think one of the things that stands out to me most of all is every time I read it, I think about Jesus. Every time. I mean, I just sat there and just amazed by how it goes hand in hand in that way. God the Father spoke of His Son, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In John 1.11, it says His Son came down. He came unto His brothers. He came among the Jewish people. And John 1.11 says, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. What they do Instead, they rejected Him. Why? Because his deeds, their deeds were evil and He was righteous. The only people that really would receive Him in were the tax collectors and sinners and the rebels, but the religious people rejected Him from the start. Ultimately, the crowds who followed Him, though, they too would turn against Him. He would go to the cross. And you know who would participate with that? Him going to the cross? The Jew and the Gentile, both united in rejecting Him. Just like in Joseph's life, his brothers reject Him, the Jewish people, the Gentiles reject Him, Potiphar's wife, he ends up in jail. We see both of those taking place. Now turn to Acts chapter 2, just for a moment. And as you go to Acts 2, just turn to twenty-two, verse 22, and we'll kind of move through there. But on the cross, we're going to see both of them rejecting Him. He would say there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. He would later be alienated from His Father, 
for them. He would be forsaken of His Father. He would be absent of His Father's presence. Then He would die. And He would be buried uh, buried in, in, in a borrowed grave. But on the third day, after living down in the pit, He would rise again. It's a beautiful picture. And not only that, He would send His Spirit to His people and they would speak this message of the Gospel of what had taken place. But So let's look at this in Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Look at verse 32 and 33. This Jesus God raised up and and all uh, I'm sorry and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he's poured it out this this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Go to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The question here comes to us, who killed Jesus? God did and they did. It's divine sovereignty and human responsibility involved in the process of killing Jesus. You keep moving forward, but after that, what happened? He was raised and seated at the right hand of God. He, he, he's, he's there. He rises up to this place. And you keep moving forward. And you say, and He sent His Spirit. And then the question is, how should we respond? He sent His Spirit and told these people, you, inhabited by the Spirit, go speak this message of the Gospel. And then he, they go and speak this message. And the question is, how can, should we respond? Those who were cut to the heart, those who saw their sins, those who were convicted and had come to a place of repentance, they are to repent and be baptized. It has the idea of repenting and believing and obedience. You kind of ask the question, how, how would we get there? We say to you today, it's kind of the thing, you read this story, and you read Genesis 45, and you say there was one who went and he was persecuted, and he suffered, and he did so for the salvation of others. He did so to bring about the promise being fulfilled. This Jesus came and did this, and he was crucified, buried, he rose again, he rose victorious, he seated the right hand of the Father, he sends his spirit down so that there would be people who would proclaim this message, so that you would speak to one another this message so that you would speak to the world this message so that they would repent and believe the gospel what what we meant for evil what the human race meant for evil against the son was a, was God's plan to bring salvation to us it's what he's done to bring about salvation for us it's so important for us to see that today And for those of us who have experienced that, to proclaim that message to others, that they might see it, but even also in going alongside that, to live in light of that towards one another. When there's anger and bitterness in our hearts, 
that we might embrace this amazing story that God has provided for wretched sinners, blessing beyond measure. He's promised blessing that we could never imagine. And in response to that, may we treat one another as Joseph treated his brothers. May we have hearts of forgiveness, of compassion, and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in this story, we see the greater story. We see the story of the one who would not just save from physical famine. We see the one who would save us from spiritual famine. We see that we were starving and blind and naked. He clothed us with His righteousness and will seat us with Him one day. Lord, this story should not just be for us to say one day we'll be in heaven, but also that we would live in light of that today towards one another. In Christ's name, Amen.